Well, hello again. Um, if you would, um, open your Bibles. Maybe you brought one from home. We use the ESV version here. Um, or there's one in your pew. We're just going to kind of run through it piecemeal as we have before. It's Isaiah 29. I know it says verses 1 through 9. Uh, oh, it says 1 through 19. We corrected that. Yes. We're not doing all 24 verses. All right. There we go. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven. Uh, it is true that our lives have been redeemed with a costly love. As we meditate upon your bigness, God, may we be reminded that you became small for us, um, that you came and took on flesh, um, that the living word um, walked among us and lived and died and risen, has risen for us. So may this living word dwell in us richly as we ponder um, just what life is like and the difficulties here on earth when you are big, uh, a big God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Sometimes God just doesn't make sense to us, right? Why is this? Well, one reason I think is this. We tend to think along these lines. Well. God is the supreme being of the universe, and God loves me. Uh, therefore, my life should look a certain way, right? Just fill in the blank. My life should look pain-free or drama-free or successful or enviable. In our heads, we think that this is how life should be when God, who runs the universe, loves you. <laughs> Everything should just fall nicely into place for you. But of course, this betrays a few assumptions. The first is that I am at the center of God's universe. He lives for me in my glory. And the second assumption is that there is nothing in my life that God needs to radically change. But God is not focused upon our assumptions, and so sometimes God doesn't make sense to us. Our sermon today is titled, The Unavoidable Bigness of God. Isaiah helps us to see that God is God and we are not and that this is okay. Ray Ortland Jr. puts it this way. It's as if God is saying, you won't always understand me, but you can always trust me. If I surprise you with trouble, I will also surprise you with the joy that I will bring out of that trouble. You may struggle to believe that right now, but what seems so impossible is the very thing I specialize in. Did you know that your greatest breakthroughs might be when you hit a brick wall? Did you know that the most constructive thing that might happen to you is when your world falls apart? Sometimes we Christians need that because we think we've got God all figured out. In our last sermon, I know it's kind of hard to remember those things. <laughs> I tend to be like, what did I preach last week? I don't know. Uh, it was actually two weeks ago. Um, Isaiah recalled two famous times in Israel's history when the people were backed into a corner against insurmountable odds. Isaiah is reminding his reader for how God has delivered his people at Mount Perizim and in the Valley of Gibeon. And then right below that, Isaiah describes the Lord's work with these words. Listen, here's how he describes. Strange is his deed, and alien is his work. 
Listen, if you've ever found yourself thinking that God, thinking of God, strange is his deed and alien is his work, then you're in good company. And think this through. When you find yourself perplexed because you cannot see what God is up to, you are in fact seeing something. What is it? You're seeing the bigness of God. You're seeing that God is God and you are not. And if God is able to get you to see that, listen, his grace has come upon you. Ortland writes, you are discovering what it means to trust God and surrender to God rather than control him. And if you're in Christ, God never gives you what you deserve. In grace, he gives you what you need. You need encouragement, he gives it. You need confrontation, he gives it. God knows you better than you do. And God's designs for you are far greater than your own designs for yourself. And because of this, God will bring into your life twists and turns that you would never take on your own. He will subject you to trials and tribulations you would never willingly enter into. When you joyfully come to grips with this, it changes you. How so? Will you become meek? And with this meekness, God's joy comes upon you. I'm not making this up. This is the promise that Isaiah speaks of in verse 19. Listen, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. So let's dig in and see what Isaiah wants to show us about this unavoidable bigness of God. And the proper response to the unavoidable bigness of God is to surrender ourselves in meekness to God. We're going to look at that under three headings. First, the victory, then the mystery, then the sovereignty. First, the victory. I think we all know, if you've been around here long enough, that God is winning a victory and will one day fully win the victory over all that is wrong with the world. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he's going to win this victory over all things, including human beings, including us, made in his image, um, who are supposed to live for his glory, but yet we've turned from him. And so because of this, listen, God is both your greatest rival and your only refuge. God is both your greatest rival and your only refuge. So the question is, will he only be your rival? Or will you turn to your rival and seek refuge in him? Isaiah begins by showing us God's victory over his people's complacency and obstinacy. And by the way, we're supposed to kind of see ourselves in this. Verse 1, he begins with the word, ah. The Hebrew conveys dissatisfaction and pain. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Ariel means altar hearth. It's the stone surface in the temple upon which the fire consumes the sacrifice. In verse 8, a little further down, we see that Ariel is revealed to be Zion or Jerusalem. So why call Jerusalem Ariel? Well, for a good reason, because Isaiah shows us that, that Jerusalem itself is an altar where sinners from around the world are meant to come and to worship a big and holy God through the substitutionary sacrifice on the altar. It's a good thing. But the second line of verse 1, Isaiah confronts the city, the people, 
Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Isaiah is speaking sarcastically. Every year, the people make a big fuss during the Holy Weeks. They get all excited. The celebrations are so elaborate, so beautiful, and yet so empty. What's going on here? Ortland writes, Jerusalem does not see her privilege and her peril. For us sinners, God is both high-voltage danger and overflowing salvation. And the only refuge from his holy wrath is his holy love in Christ, our substitute on the altar of his cross. In other words, the only escape from God is in God. But the worship of these people is impervious to both the heat of his anger and the warmth of his love. They neither tremble nor rejoice in God's presence. They just go through the motions. So in his sight, they're just wasting their time. That's why he goes on to say what he says in verses 2 through 4. Here's the big God. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentations, and she shall be like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will rage siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak. And from the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust, your speech shall whisper. The unavoidable bigness of God will do what is right. Such fickle worship will end. God will lay siege against them. And here's the kicker. God will lay siege against all our false and fickle worship. And he's right and good to do that, is he not? The question is, does your understanding of God allow him to be big like this? See, what Isaiah wants God's people to know is that if we're under siege, if we're ever under siege, it is God who we must reckon with. Look at the last verse, though. It teaches us something. God will bring us low from the dust and our speech will become bowed down. This is a good work. A voice from the dust will whisper words to God. This is God humbling his people and it's only after God's work to humble us that he becomes big to us and good to us and our speech becomes bowed down. God produces meekness in us. And so we should ask ourselves this morning what our worship is like. Is it fickle? Is there complacency? Do we come here self-focused? Are we just going through the motions? Or are we humble and meek in this place? Are we happy just to meet friends here? Or are we here to delight in God and draw near to him? God also wins a victory over the people's adversaries. God is good to do this. As messed up as we are, we're still his people, and he's going to fight our battles for us. Do you understand that? That's what we see in verses 5 through 8. Isaiah is showing us what God is like, right? Um, God frustrates the schemes of all who oppose him. Verses 5 through 8. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. 
And in an instant, subtly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and he wakes with this hunger not satisfied. This is beautiful imagery, right? Or when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he is drinking and he awakes faint with this thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Think of all the gloating over, over all the years of everyone who's been hostile towards God. How they predict the demise of the church. Remember in, in the book of Acts, chapter 23, that, that Andrew Barber went through? In chapter 23, there were 40 men who bound themselves to an oath that they would never eat or drink until they had assassinated Paul. Remember that? <laughs> well, they failed, right? Don't you ever wonder what happened to those 40 men? <laughs> During the Enlightenment, Voltaire claimed that the, the, by the early 1800s, the Bible would become forgotten literature. And remember how John Lennon, when interviewed um, in his days back with the Beatles, he said these words, I'm quoting him, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I am right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Everyone who insists that life is best lived with God relegated to obscurity will in the end encounter the unavoidable bigness of God. God is your greatest rival, but he can also be your great refuge. The only escape from God is in God. So the question is, have you turned to him in faith? That's the victory now for the mystery. You know, bigness and mystery go hand in hand. And because God is incredibly big, he's also mysterious. The question for you is this, are you okay with God being a mystery? Does God have to be figure outable to you? I just made that word up, sorry. Or do you insist on saying my God would never fill in the blank? In our text, Isaiah shows one of God's mysteries. The mystery is this, that if you insist on having a hard heart towards God, he will help you have a harder heart. In verses 9 through 14, Isaiah describes how the spiritual leaders lacked spiritual love and zeal for God and how God gave them over to even worse versions of themselves. My God would never do that. Well, yes. It's as if God is saying, fine, you want to act like you're spiritually blind, go ahead. But you will only get worse, not better. You like getting intoxicated by your own prideful theories about who I am? Well, stagger on then. I'm not stopping you. It might seem to us to be unfair or harsh on God's part. But in the bigness of God, there is a mystery. It says, if you do not use the little bit of divine light that God has given you to draw near to him, well, he will make it darker. 
The question is, is your God big enough to be this way? The reality of this mystery we see in verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. First, Isaiah isn't speaking of physical blindness or physical staggering. This is a spiritual reality of blindness and staggering. And second, Isaiah is saying that this is what people do to themselves. Blind yourselves and be blind. Spiritual blindness progresses over a believer's life in a way that they become more and more spiritually blind as they get older. You've seen this, right? So on the one hand, people blind themselves to God, but in the very next verse, this is also a mysterious work of God. Verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Isaiah is saying he's done this to the prophets and seers, the ones who should live with, with great faith in God and great love for God's word. But they don't. And since they live in denial, they only get what? Greater denial. This is God's response to their unresponsiveness. And we've seen this before, have we not? Remember when, when God spoke to Moses about Pharaoh. God told Moses that Pharaoh's heart was hard towards him. And God also told Moses that he had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one is it? It's both. If your heart is hard towards God, he has no, listen, God has no obligation to soften your heart for the better. You want a hard heart? It's just going to get harder. God gives the hard heart what a hard heart wants. <laughs> Greater hardness so that it can live with greater confidence that God really isn't that big. Now, I should note, before we start thinking of people who need to hear this, that, that the ones experiencing this mysterious spiritual hardening aren't the vocal atheists outside the church. They're the functional atheists inside the church. Verses 11 and 12 provide a key for understanding this condition through the lens of two men. One is a learned man. He was smart. The other was a literate man. He didn't know much. Verse 11 through 12. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says... I cannot read, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, he says, and, and saying, read this, he says, I cannot read, as if he's off the hook. The first man is handed, handed a scroll like a closed Bible, and he's just too lazy to open it and find out what it says. Perhaps he thinks he's got it all figured out already. Maybe that's you. Other men are given the same book. But he's not interested in learning. He just simply responds, I cannot read. Isaiah sees both responses among the people of God. Both are symptoms of unbelief. And what Isaiah is saying is, is God takes a person's distaste for the truth of his words, and, and he turns it into spiritual blindness. And the blindness that is at the center of attention is how the people of God engage in heartless worship 
They show up to the Ariel, the altar hearth. They go through the motions, singing, praying, sacrificing, but their hearts aren't in it. Have you ever shown up to a worship service this way? On my drive in, I knew I was going to be preaching on this. I'm like, all right, I got to get all the distractions away. I'm on my way to church, and I'm preaching on having a heart for worship. Mark, will you have a heart for worship? I hope so. It can be hard, can it not? But look at verses 13 and 14. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ortland summarizes this way. Beneath the beautiful observance, they were using the worship of God, listen, as a mechanism for avoiding God, for controlling God, and for setting limits on God. I think it's important we investigate ourselves now. Did you come to this worship service this morning to meet with God or to keep him off your back? Did you come thinking that your effort to be here will somehow put God in debt, that he'll somehow owe you something like a good week? Did you come thinking that by, by, by you taking the steps to come near to God, that you're now able to tell him what needs to be off limits to him? Mystery. In the unavoidable bigness of God lies mystery. So we've seen the bigness of God and the victory of God and the mystery of God. Lastly, in the sovereignty of God. A sovereign is one who rules, like a, a king or a queen, has a territory that's theirs. For us men, it's, it's on our lazy boy in the family room, perhaps. We must conclude, with regards to God, that not only does God exist, but he's on a throne. That is, he's sovereign overall, not just a little part of things. Nothing hinders God. There's nothing that God wants to do that he's like, oh, shoot, that's beyond my abilities. He's able to do anything he wants. In other words, he's completely free. He's unhindered. No wonder we want to be like God. The question is, what is your relationship to the sovereign God? Is he on the throne of your life or are you on the throne of your life? It really matters. Now, think this through. Unless you understand and submit to the sovereignty of God, your life will be frustratingly uncomfortable. Your life will be characterized by constant questioning. Why? How come? Why me? Why now? This cannot be. Because God is the ultimate sovereign of the universe, his sovereign bigness is unavoidable. In verses 15 and 16, Isaiah describes the practical atheism that, that pervades America today. Verse 15, 
Uh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is this not the mindset of our society in which we live? That there is no God above. Our society says, don't, don't let any, anyone get in the way of your dreams, especially God. If there's a God, surely he's interested in the details of your life. And so people think, or he isn't interested. He, he doesn't care what we do on this earth. So people think, who sees us? Who knows us? Certainly not God. I'm living here in the dark. It's like Clay saying to the potter, he did not make me. He surely doesn't understand me. Isn't Isaiah rich? Amazing literature. My friends, this is how much of the world lives in its lunacy. The clay saying to the potter, ha, you have no rights over me. Consider the words from C.S. Lewis. Here's what he wrote. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Our human defiance is lunacy, is it not? But consider this amazing truth. It's in this place of lunacy where God begins to do his gracious work in you. God doesn't start his relationship with you after you've come to your senses and agree with him and get everything cleaned up. No, God begins his work with everyone while we're still happily in a state of defiant lunacy. He comes to us. He initiates. He gives new life. He plants his spirit in us. He makes his word come alive in us. It's at this point where God's grace begins to create something new, something different. Verse 17 through 19. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon, glorious Lebanon, shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt the Holy One of Israel. Talk about transformation. Talk about the undeserving, receiving great blessing from God and God taking them places and doing things with them that they'd never imagined possible. Lebanon was known, is known, especially in the Bible, for its massive cedar forests. The temple was built with the cedars of Lebanon. I was in the cedars of Lebanon last fall when I was traveling there. 
Some of the trees I stood under were over 2,000 years old. They were huge. They were giant. I carved my name in one of them. Just joking. Just joking. <laughs> joking. <laughs> Isaiah is saying the pride of his people stands on this earth like a forest in Lebanon. Look at the glory. We're a giant forest of trees. And, I, and God says, no, you're not. I'm going to cut you down and make you into a fruitful field. But notice what happens. There is rejoicing that what took place. The fruitful field that God has turned my life into is regarded as a forest that I once longed for. We as human beings think, oh, I'm making a forest out of my life. I hang out with forest people. We're proud. We're strong. Look how great I am. I work for a great boss. He's a forest. And I work at a great company. Look at my forest of a family. We get great Instagram pictures. Everybody wants to be a forest. God says, no. I'm going to humble you. You're going to be meek. I'm going to transform you by my sovereign grace. And I ch I'm going I'm to work in you to whittle off all the sin that is in you right now. And you're going to be a fruitful field. But when it's all done, you're going to feel like that forest you should have been. Right? Now I know what forest living looks like. And it's not a forest. It's a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. I think many of you know what Isaiah is talking about, right? You look back over your life and you see how you were chasing after this and God came and got you. And he says, no, I got something better. It'll look different. But at the end, it'll feel like a forest. And so, but who will do this work for us? The Lord. And how can this be? Because he's completely sovereign over all, and he loves you. And if you've come to trust in Christ, then God has cut down your prideful forest so that he may make you a fruitful, fruitful, field for his glory. But listen, when God's grace first comes upon you, it, it unearths us, right? It like plows us up. We saw that last time. It's an upheaval. You come face to face with the unavoidable sovereign bigness of God, and it makes you what? Meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength, but under control. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest, for I am meek or gentle. It's the same word in the Greek. Meekness is the opposite of self-interest or self-assertiveness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, how does one transition from defiant lunacy to, to meekness with fresh joy in the Lord. It's by the sovereignty of God. If you've come to experience the new birth that Jesus spoke of, it, it's God's sovereign will. It's come upon you. Yes, it's true. You chose Jesus, but only because God first chose you. It's a mystery. The Apostle Paul illuminates God's sovereign choosing of his people as he opens up his letter to the Ephesian church. 
Here's what he writes. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then later, two verses, Paul writes that this is the mystery of his will. God's sovereignty is mysterious. It confounds us. And it produces a meekness in us that causes us to say why. But it's a different sort of why. Remember at the beginning of this message, we tend to, we tend to ask why. Why have you troubled me, God? <laughs> now we ask, why? Why have you chosen me? Why? I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just a sinner like everybody else, self-absorbed in my own life, and yet you came to me. Why me? Has the grace of God gotten you to go from why God, why God, why, to why? If so, his meekness has come upon you. He's produced it in you. It's part of that fruitful field that he's trying to build in his people. It's a mystery. And yet it's true. God is sovereign over all, including you coming to faith in Christ. Well, this morning, Isaiah has shown us the unavoidable bigness of God. Sometimes God just does not make sense to us. And this is because he's unavoidably big. But I want us also to see that God is also wonderfully small. Think about it, this great, big, grand God who we can't wrap our heads around became human, became small for us. He left his riches to become poor for us. I think our Lord knows exactly what he's calling us to because he's lived it. God, the wonderful, big God we cannot comprehend has become someone we can a human being who walked this earth, bore our sins, and has risen in glory. God is unavoidably big. We see that in his victory over all that opposes him. Remember, for us sinners, God is both high-voltage danger and overflowing salvation. And so, so the only refuge from his holy wrath is the holy love he's given us in Christ. The only escape from God is in God. Do you understand this? And the bigness of God is mysterious. If we do not use a little bit of divine light that God has given us to draw nearer to God, he will let it get darker. So let us not draw near with mouths and lips while our hearts are far from God. The danger is that we drift farther from God. Instead, let us delight that because of the bigness of God, we embrace the truth that he remains a mystery. And that's okay. He remains a mystery that we can worship. 
And in the bigness of God, we've seen his sovereignty. God is God, and we are not. The sooner we humble ourselves and delight in this truth, the better. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so when we embrace the life of meekness before God, what happens? Fresh joy in the Lord comes upon us. Blessed are the meek. For God, who was their greatest rival, has become their secure refuge. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, we confess your ways are confounding. We also confess our sin of needing to know all your ways until we honor you with our lives. Thank you for showing us that we can walk in faith without knowing everything, that you are a big and trustworthy God. Help us to live in meek obedience to who you are. We desire that joy that comes to the meek. Lord Jesus, we thank you for becoming small so that we can experience your grace. Amen.